we're always looking for best in class operators, that kind of thing to partner with. That's kind of our model. So we're not really an operator, although we have a team. We're more of a capital allocator into that vertical right now. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with the incredible Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing good. I am doing great. We just went through our homeschooling yesterday and we had our entrepreneur lab. We do it once a week. And it's been so fun because my kids get their notebooks and they're all eager beavers to learn about just what does it mean to be an entrepreneur and just talking about the different aspects of entrepreneur life versus W2 life. And it's so cool to watch young kids that are in their 10, 9, 7 and watch them be interested and excited about coming to school and learning about how to make different ways that we can make money and going getting a job is one way and running a business is another. But we don't get to talk about that a lot at those ages. I mean, even as an adult, it's not really like there's a special school that you go to to learn how to be an entrepreneur. Most people go out and into the real world and learn, which is a great way to learn too. But it would just be great, I think, if kids at younger ages could be having these conversations around entrepreneurship. So yeah, absolutely. It was and they're so smart, right? They come with so much just um, innate knowledge at a young age. And we've seen that a lot in our Money Wise Kids classes that these kids are just so bright. They've got such great creative ideas at such a young age. It's such a, it makes for such a spirited discussion around oh, yeah. business and finance and things that you don't think normally kids would be interested in, yeah. but they love it. They love it. Yeah. Well, that ties in very nicely, actually, with our guest today, because he talks about how with his kids, when they were young, he talked a lot about how to think about money. And he knew his kids had it really dialed in when his son called him to ask if he had any short, I think, short-term notes because he wanted to buy a car. He didn't want to just dig money out of his pocket to pay for the car, but he wanted to figure out a way to leverage it. So our guest today is Dave Van Horn. He's often known as the king of notes, and he is the CEO and founder of PPR Note company. And he's got such a fascinating story and background. He's done all sorts of different things in the world of real estate and lending. And in this episode, he talks about really how he got started in notes, when he got started in notes, which is a really fascinating time as well. And really, he dives into a little bit of what happens to real estate and lending when a recession happens, which is sort of where we are right now, sort of on this precipice. And he talks through his journey of what he's seen and what he's done and also the pivot that he's making in his business now, which is very fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things that I heard come up throughout the episode was he was constantly trying to find ways to leverage, as you mentioned, different situations, whether it was his role and what he was doing in the real estate investment world, or whether it was how do I leverage this asset that I have or this skill set that I have. And another thing that I saw kind of come up too was 
how can I take one thing that I do or one thing that I'm involved in, one investment or one skill set, and how can I leverage that to not just get paid once, but how can I leverage it to get paid multiple times? And when I first fell into this world five or six years ago, more seriously in looking at investments, those two things, how can I get paid in multiple streams of income or different ways from one investment, or how do I leverage a skill set that I learned or something to be enable myself to get paid in many different ways was something that was always very intriguing for me and something that he talked about as well. And the leverage piece was something else that continues to be something that is fascinating to me because I think traditionally we're taught like you have a dollar and here's how you can spend that dollar and that's the world of it, right? But there's so much more um, that you can do beyond that if you figure out how to get creative. And towards the end, we talked a little bit about the fire movement and things like that. And it's not so much for me as well about how do I save money, but it's fun to watch how people can get really creative with with their skill sets or their money and then subsequently leverage it. And so anyway, we talked a lot about that on the show and it was interesting. So yeah. Yeah, that's it, right? It's about the creativity and thinking outside the box and creating, as Dave talks about, multiple streams of income. And so for any of you who are new to the world of real estate, particularly the world of real estate syndications, it can be a great way to get started in passive investing, as Dave talks about on this show. So if you are new to it or wanting to learn more about it, we've got a great resource for you. It's a copy of our book. It's called Investing for Good. And we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodegginvestments.com slash book. All right. With that, let's dive into our conversation with Dave Van Horn. Dave, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm unbelievable. How about you guys? <laughs> I don't think we've ever gotten that answer. Unbelievable. I love it. What great energy. Well, Dave, <laughs> I didn't say good or bad. I just said unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's all good. Good, good. Well, we're thrilled to chat with you today and introduce you and all that you do to our audience, especially because you are essentially the king of notes. I know you do a lot of other things. But a lot of people know you for your work in notes. And I think we've only had maybe one or two other guests on the show come on to talk about notes. So this is an area I'm sure our audience is hungry to learn more about, particularly given all the shifts in the market of late. And I know you've made some shifts as well. So we'll dive into all of that. But before we get into notes and the market and what you're focused on these days, let's go back earlier in your story. I know you have oh over 30 years years of experience in both residential and commercial real estate. So it's not like you just randomly fell into no. uh, the note space <laughs> of real estate. One day you've been a realtor, an investor, title company partner, and commercial fundraiser for quite some time. So walk us through a bit of your story and share with us some of the highlights of your journey and how you eventually got to where you are today. Oh, wow. Well, I, went to I don't ask small questions. It's all big questions. So no, I mean, uh, where do you start? <laughs> um, plus, you know, I started in real estate in 1986, right? So that's a long time ago. But for me, I went to school to be an accountant and I didn't like it. And I switched to management and got out of school and couldn't get a job. Imagine that. And, you know, had student loans and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to all these stories, right? 
I was working in construction. Then eventually I started my own contracting business as well. In fact, my oldest son, it was a painting company and I had it for 10 years. I started it when I was 32 and then got hurt when I was 42. And luckily I had a lot of rental property and I was able to make it through. But my oldest son today runs Van Horn Painting. It's been around like 30, 31 years now. So does really well, does a lot of multifamily up and down the East Coast from, believe it or not, from Virginia to Connecticut. And he does a lot of, there's some firms he works for out of California, for example. When they acquire multi, they'll go in and change over the exteriors and the hallways and do the quick color upgrades and things like that. But for me, you know, couldn't really get a, a job. And my mom, I was actually couldn't afford an apartment even. And I was married and had a son when I got done college and I was living with my mom. And my mom said, why don't you try real estate? And then I went into real estate and I was really just a regular agent. I kind of became an investor from that angle. So I wasn't always fix and flipper or anything in the beginning. And I was really a regular agent. And I actually took a course to get my broker's license. And it was a course in real estate investment. And the teacher was like, how many of you in here have credit cards? We all raised their hand. And he said, how many of you own properties with them? And all the hands went down. And I remember going home and telling my wife, I think we're going to go buy some houses with credit cards. And my wife was like, what? And she's like, that's not going to affect my ability to go to the supermarket and the mall. Or anything. I'm like, no, that's a different credit card. Don't worry about it. So that's kind of how it started. Now, credit cards were much different then. There was no cash advance fees relatively. There, it wasn't nothing like today. Today, you would just use hard money or whatever, private money. So that's how it started. And I didn't have capital, right? I was handy because I was a contractor and I was an agent. So I had sources of deals. I just didn't have capital. And really the credit card filled that void in the beginning. And then you know I acquired probably a dozen houses like that and eventually got up to 40 I had 40 places at one point. I was well on my way to have probably 100. But what happened was my portfolio jumped in value. And then I started utilizing lines of credit. And then I became a lender. would lend to fellow contractors to do their rehabs. Because just being a painting contractor, I was involved with two to 300 renovations anyway, just from my business. You know? So it just kind of morphed into that. And then years later, after I had gotten hurt, I just went into real estate full time. You know, I was a Remax agent. And that's when I started to do kind of like multiple streams of income type stuff where, you know, I would do title, I'd write mortgages through my wife, I would do property management, and then we'd paint your places. And then I became an investor friendly realtor and focused on that. So for the first 15 years, I was probably a regular agent. And then after that, I became more of an investor friendly agent where I would sell an investor maybe 10 properties. And then I'd do the management, do the title, do the turnovers, all that kind of thing. So I was getting paid multiple times per client and then got into the note business by accident, which is kind of funny. It was 2007. It was before the crash. But me and my partner, John, my partner, John was actually my lender. He was a mortgage originator. And I used to run a real estate investment group. This was before Meetup or any of the things you see today. And my group started out with 12 people at lunch, and then it turned into five states, six cities from Baltimore to New York. I'm in Philadelphia, by the way. And that group turned into 8,000 people in our database in about a five, six-year period. And really, the only secret sauce was like something my grandmom was, was like the heart to every man is through his belly. So I believe that we would have a meal together. And that's how you got to network. You have classroom-style meetings and all. And you just don't really get to know anybody. So the only... Secret sauce was you were allowed to bring your deals and put them on the table. 
And then we all had a meal together. And then it started out with me, an insurance agent, an attorney. I had a securities attorney. I had an accountant, had a financial planner, had a self-directed IRA custodian. That's how we started the group. And we just all brought our networks to the meeting. And then it just blew up. And then that what started happening was I would interview speakers. And one of the speakers was someone raising capital for pools and mortgages out of New York. They came down and spoke. And of course, I didn't do anything for like three years, but my partner, John, did. So we're like, how are you getting these crazy returns and how are they able to pay you? And that kind of started it. And then around 2007, right before the crash, we knew something was up. Like it wasn't a normal environment. Almost like now, it was like not normal. You could sense it. So we knew something was going to happen. And my partner came to me and said, you know how to raise capital? Because at the time I was raising capital for commercial real estate. I started out with mobile home parks, storage centers, was doing some commercial office condo development. I was a capital raiser, largely from this group that I formed. So people would come to me to pitch stuff and say, hey, can we pitch this at your group? And that's kind of how I started raising capital. So my partner approached me and said, well, you raise capital for notes if I work them out. So he was basically the ops person and I was more of the, the fundraiser, so to speak. And that's kind of how it started. We initially had a short sale company and the sign on our office was this short sale company and that went out of business. And then in the back room was this note thing my partner was doing and that took off. So it was this, some of it's, I don't know, hard work, some of it's luck, some of it's timing. I don't know what it is. And then here we are today, fast approaching probably a billion under management. We're, we're about 300 million of private equity. We're just under that right now. So and now our equity is a little different than some of the multi. We do some multi. We have just under a thousand units. We're a little different because our money's turning all the time. And we're still about 70%, you know, non-performing loans, which and you mentioned the environment coming up. If there is a true recession, for us, that means unemployment ticks up, which is seems like what the Fed is pushing on. They're like, oh, we want to see unemployment increase. Well, that is, it's unfortunate for people to go on unemployment, but in, in the non-performing uh, note world, that's probably the leading economic indicator for us of when our business ticks up and when supply of assets become cheaper and more abundant. So for us, that's a profitable season, but we also do commercial loans as well. I mean, we purchase, we have a hard money division. So we do uh, some other stuff on the commercial loan side, but we're still 75% in the mortgage-backed, you know, real estate-backed mortgages. So we're fund managers. We manage mortgage and commercial real estate-backed assets, really. So. so for anybody who is listening to this and they might be new to the world of notes, can you just share at a high level, what is a note? Is it a mortgage? Is it's a it musical a symbol. Is Come it a- <laughs> on. Um, it's funny. My wife still can't explain to people what I do. She's like, yeah, he does this stuff. <laughs> No, I mean, it it is pretty simple. I like to say that we're all in the note business and a lot of us don't realize we are because we're not actively participating in it. We might just pay our credit card statement or we may send in a mortgage payment or auto payment, but we're kind of all in the debt business, whether we know it or not. It's happening all around us in my mind. And when I look at around the room, I'm looking at everything in this room that you guys are sitting in has been financed by some company somewhere, or right? If you think about it. So I always say we're all in the note business. It's just, we're looking at receiving payments instead of sending payments. And sometimes we can buy distressed debt or delinquent debt at a discount. And 
It's one of the things that appealed to me about it. At the time, when I first got into it, I used to trade option. And one of the things that kind of turned me on about the note business was, hey, I can buy something at a discount with a high yield with collateral. So the collateral was the difference maker for me. Now, not all notes have collateral. I mean, there's unsecured notes like credit card debt, but you have student loan debt, you have auto debt, you have a lot of different types of debt. Believe it or not, I invest in a lot of different types as well on a personal level, but the company is all asset backed. It is different in that regard. And it's something with my real estate background, pretty basically all I've ever done. It's a, I'm a firm believer in investing in what you know too, right? So, so I give that example sometimes. I had someone that had a heating and air conditioning business and I was out to lunch with them. I said, have you ever thought of financing heater installation? And he's like, oh, you can do that. And in reality, that's the note business, right? He went out and actually started to finance the heaters and air conditioning units. And he would get a deposit. A lot of times that would cover the unit. He'd finance the labor. And if you think about it, even if the party didn't pay, he could put a mechanics lien on the property, right? So he's got collateral. So there are cases like that. And then I also had a dentist and orthodontist buddy who teamed up and formed a finance company for dental work, for example. Now, dental work's not really secured. You're not going to rip someone's fillings out if they don't pay or something. But it's, that's similar to credit card debt. There's a default rate and the interest rate's a little higher than whatever asset-backed rates would be. So it's all factored in. It's all statistical. So yes, it kind of started like that and morphed into all kinds of things. But really on a personal level, I, I like, it's like my hobby is passive investing and all the alternatives. And I tend to like anything lending related or real estate related, or, you know, so I just play in those categories. So back in 2007, when you first got into this space, I know you mentioned you had these rental properties and you were building your own portfolio and you could have kept going with that. But yeah. then here comes the notes space into your overall purview. What was going on in the world of notes then? And what attracted you to that space? And then compare that with where we are now. And like, is it similar? Are you seeing some of the Some things are similar, some things are different. Because, well, some things that are actually similar right now are the high rates. One of the last regular single family rental properties I bought, because today I'm mostly a participant in in commercial real estate and mostly multifamily units, either in, because I'm a lazier investor today, I'm more of a limited partner. (laughs) Me too. I'm right there with you, Dave. (laughs) In things, or I'm a GP, or I'm a signer on a balance sheet type thing. So it's a different way of investing than the actual. And I'm, I'm some of that I'm doing for my family and my wife. I don't want to make her life crazy if something happens to me. So if I had a lot of SFR, single family properties. So about a year and a half, two years ago, I got, I actually sold my last 14 properties to a guy locally that I knew through, you know, bigger pockets and things like that. So your goals shift. So in the beginning, my goal was I want to buy a house a year. And then it was, I want to have 20 houses free and clear. And then I wanted to have 100 properties. And then what shifted it for me was when I became a lender, I was lending money out of my lines of credit. And then I was lending money from my qualified plans, my retirement accounts and things. And what I noticed was because I was doing property management for other people and myself, I realized I was like a full-time inspector. I was doing HUD inspections. I was doing Section 8 or whatever. I was going to court all the time. And I wasn't really getting paid to go to court or anything. I'm like, why am I in court all the time? I'm in court every week, right? I mean, not that that's a place you want to be or anything. But then, but with my notes, I was like, well, that doesn't happen over here. Over here, I'm just getting payments. 
I'm not saying you would never take a property back, but it was very nominal. So it became easier cash flow and easier money. Now it is a capital intensive business, but if you really think about it, we built PPR with virtually, I don't say none of our own money, but almost none of our own money. I put up money initially, but really it became from the money we raised that helped us leverage that. So mm-hmm. in reality, we built this, we're going to be building this billion dollar company out of none of our own money. We're really becoming our own bank, right? So to speak. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what you think is going on in the, <laughs> oh, in the market. I didn't really answer that yeah. question. I dodged that one. Because there's a lot, very strange time right now. I feel like we're in this period of like potentially facing recession. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. I think it's definitely on its way. Some say it already happened. Some say it's starting. I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts? And then I, I want to take that and talk about the transition because I know you're transitioning a little bit away from nodes and want to talk about the reasons behind that. So anybody who might be listening might get some insight from you. I know that when you're at conferences, this is a big topic that you regularly speak on. So would love to hear your opinion on this. So I do cheat a little bit because I have a full-time economist on staff. So we have a market watch forecaster in our midst at PPR. So a guy named Spencer Staples, who's actually a forecaster. So I have the luck of walking down the hall and getting the latest of, of all the data. You've got a crystal ball. He on, buys on a lot staff. of data. We need to get so, one of those. So I have a little bias to his opinion sometimes because uh-huh. I get like these weekly updates all the time. But the to be honest though, in 2006, one of the last, I was starting to say the last single family rental I bought, guess what the interest rate was in 2006 when I bought that? It was 8% on that rental property. And my partner, John, gave me that loan, right? So it kind of gives you color as we're, we're right there again at those rates, right? And when I started in real estate in 86, 87 was when I really started to become active. Rates were 14 Right. And I had bought a primary residence. I was telling my son this. My son just bought his third property the other day. And I was like, and he was complaining a little bit about the rates. I go, well, your dad, you know, the house we grew up in when you were a toddler, I paid 11% and six points for that mortgage, but I still made money. I bought the the house, had burnt down. I rebuilt the house. I couldn't sell it. So we moved in it. That's really what happened. But he's shocked at like, well, isn't 11% six points, like 17%? I'm like, yeah, pretty much. It's like paying a bookie almost. It's that high, right? So, but the problem I had was I was a contractor less than five years in business and they clobbered me in points and fees, right? But I had to buy out a partner and that was the only way I could do it. And I still made a lot of money on the property when I flipped it later. I ended up keeping it as a rental for 10 years and then sold it, but I, I made a lot of money on it. So even though I had high cost of capital initially, but the one thing that when uh, rates were really high, when I started out in real estate, that's when the adjustable mortgage came out. That's when the buy down came out. Those products didn't even exist prior to that. In fact, they didn't really have second mortgages that long ago. If you think about it, when my mom got a mortgage, there was no second mortgages. So it's kind of interesting how the mortgage business evolved. And these products are, you're going to start to see some of these products surface again, I think, if rates continue to go higher. But I usually don't lose too much sleep on that because if you have a good deal, you have a good deal and you can always refinance. So the very first property I bought was a multi-unit in 1989. And I ended up building commercial garages on the property as well. I refinanced that property five times over a 30-year period, right? 
And I even paid retail for that property. I often tell that story where I didn't really get a deal. I paid retail for it. But after 35 years, it doesn't matter. It's ridiculous. Don't worry about it. It quadrupled in value. I refinanced it five times. I mean, it's don't worry. Don't lose sleep about some of that stuff. Because some people, they don't want to get in the game till they have the perfect deal, so to speak. And it's not really required. But no, these are great points. The biggest things about inflation, all the forecasts we're getting is the Fed is going to continue to hike these rates until they see the numbers they want to see. They're going to want to see unemployment tick up. They're going to want to see inflation go down. And, And that's really that simple. So we're anticipating additional rate hikes for the next couple times, for sure. So now how severe that'll be will depend on what else happens. But it's putting pressure on all asset prices, not just the stock market. It's going to start to put pressure on real estate asset prices as well. And we had purchased a multifamily complex in Athens, Georgia, just this past spring and summer. And we were able to go back and renegotiate a million dollars off that sale price because the financing terms have changed. Now, The tough part about purchasing heavy right now, we're a little bit in the defensive position. There was actually one to two quarters this year where we cut back on our buying. Like last year, we bought 350 million in NPLs, non-performing loans. In two quarters of this year, we kind of took a more defensive position because the market pricing hadn't caught up with the interest rate hikes. So it's like trying to catch a falling knife, right? You're hoping to buy something and prices will fall tomorrow. And then the next month they'll fall again. And the next month they'll fall again. And it's just like, well, what am I walking into? You, you have to kind of be patient. And I think it's the same way with multifamily. You know, I, I was just talking to Brian Burke from Praxis Capital this past weekend. And he's like, yeah, I sold everything I wanted to sell. I'm looking at deals on my desk, but I'm really not looking that hard. And I'm being a patient investor right now. And and. He's a smart guy. I mean, he's not wrong there. And it's going to be similar with hard money too. I'm not saying you're not going to find a fix and flip or you're not going to be able to get hard money financing, although the rates may be 12 or 14 at some point. It's just you're going to see the volume start to take a little bit of a hit. And if this cost of doing business and the cost of capital keeps going up, you're going to see, could it put some businesses out and have some layoffs from that. I don't see how that cannot happen at some point if they keep putting pressure on these on these rates. It's going to get, especially where there's some businesses that were barely making it anyway, right? And then you throw in this curveball of the cost of doing everything goes up. Think about it. The cost of labor went up. The cost of my capital is going up. Can I still sustain this business model I had? And there's plenty of businesses that are probably borderline, I think. And uh, unfortunately, there's going to be some fallout but hopefully for a fund like ours, the one advantage we have, we saw it back in COVID, when COVID first hit, like up in New York, all the institutional money pulled back. And the fact that we're able to, outfits like yourself or us, we can raise private equity without traditional banks as well. It gives us the opportunity. And probably two of the greatest trades we had that year were from that time period of when COVID first hit and the banks had pulled back. And we had a couple of really unique opportunities to go in and purchase stuff. from people that were in trouble, right? So I think you're going to see some more of that shake out. So I was telling some of our investors, they were like, what's PBR going to do if there's a recession? And I'm like, I'm scratching my head going, you realize what we do, right? Because this is probably the one vehicle you might want to be in in a recession is because if you're in non-performing loans, unfortunately or unfortunately, it kind of takes off during that. The number one leading economic indicator for us is unemployment. So if unemployment ticks up traditionally, Now, you saw GDP go below the line for two quarters. 
And it was kind of a structural, technical recession, people were calling it, I believe. But unemployment was still low. That was kind of a weird scenario, right? It's like a government-inflicted type thing. And I think they're going to kind of cause this. Now, the question will be, once they've implemented enough rate hikes, will the market calm down? You know, there'll be some shakeup, but then will we be back to some level of new normalcy? And I tend to think that's the case. And so does the economist on our staff. He thinks, I don't know whether that'll be a year from now or two years from now, where we'll come back to some kind of level of normalcy where they're happy with where inflation is, or they're happy with where unemployment is, and that the rate hikes will kind of settle down. But we may be in a higher rate environment for a little bit. And I think we just launched a new fund and our rate is up now. We're paying a higher rate than we were. And I think we'll see our competitors start to do some of that as well. So if you're out raising capital, that can be impactful too, right? We'll get back to our conversation with Dave in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now, back to our chat with Dave Van Horn. How long do you think it's going to take for the rate hikes to continue on the upward trend? I know you mentioned like another maybe year or two. It just depends. But as we're looking at multifamily and we're looking at the rates and do we buy a rate cap? Do we not? How long do we yeah. do it for? Right. It's expensive. These rate caps. Are you free? Yeah, you can- it's a dangerous game, too. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you notice, most of the bridge financing went away in multifamily, right? That kind of went poof, unless it's some kind of private bridge or something from a private equity firm or something. And then you're also seeing people going into longer term products, right? And they're paying for that. That's a great question. One of the strategies that we're starting to do in in multi, we're big into workforce and housing and affordable housing. And one of the plays that we're doing in affordable housing right now is on the development side where... 
we're in short term. We're in a year to two years on the development side, and then we're kind of out. We're either selling off light tech credits or we're selling off the actual project. And most people that are in a buy and hold mindset are like, well, why would you do that? Well, we're eliminating market risk and we're, it's really becoming all execution risk for us because you're in and out of the deal in a shorter period of time. So that's more of a defensive position. And there's some of the positions we've been taking. You know, we have a couple right now in like the Austin area where, where we're working on some affordable plays like that where there are more development plays and you're still like good markets. We still like those fundamentals. But when it comes to some of the other strategies, like you're saying, the value add, for example, we have to definitely take harder looks at and you know, sharpen our pencils more because how do we know what that exit looks like? It's similar to the house flipper, right? He's, well, my cost of hard money went up. The seller hasn't really lowered their prices yet. And how do I make enough money on the deal to justify what I could sell for? And when I go to sell it, where's pricing going to be? If rates are higher, the new buyers can't afford as much. So now they don't want to offer as much. So I can't make as much money on my flip. So at some point, it doesn't pay me to wake up in the morning and go to work. I'd rather just stay home and, I don't know, read and meditate like I do or write or whatever, (laughs) drink my coffee, then go to work, right? Because I'm not really going to make any money. I'm just trading dollars at some point, right? Or I'm running a risk or I'm losing money. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding to. And that's definitely happening in all the asset classes right now, you know, multifamily and even the markets, right? Yeah. Unless you're buying an I-bond, it's just we can't, PPR can't invest in I-bond. Only Dave and Julie can and (laughs) So it's tough, right? It's going to put pressure on. It's not a simple answer to say, well, this is tough to invest in right now. I'm going to go invest in this, right? Because right now with the Fed doing that, they're kind of putting pressure on all asset classes for the most part. So you really do have to be quite selective. There are some things in our business though, like I'll give you an example is mortgage servicing rights, for example, you could invest in them. They go up in value when interest rates go up. Right. So there are certain things that you can get into, but can you get into it in enough volume to justify? So there's certain things we can do to hedge, just like real estate's normally a hedge against inflation with the rent hikes. But at some point with cap rates changing, like how does it really shake out? You guys are smarter than me. I don't know. Maybe you can figure that out. But I'm over here scratching my head sometimes going, yeah, the rate went up over here. The rent went up over here. But my price of financing went up over here and my cap rate's different over there. And this is like, all right, where am I now? Yeah. So tell us a little bit, Dave, about the transition. I spoke with somebody on your team a couple of weeks ago and was surprised to find out that within the note fund, you guys were doing multifamily and we've been talking a lot about it now. But talk to us a little bit about why the transition, particularly at this point in time right now where it should be a great time. And I would imagine that there would be more focus on note investing rather than transitioning a little bit away from that. But talk to us a little bit about that and the decision behind that. Yeah, it actually started a couple of years ago. We started to allocate more capital, become more of a capital allocator than an asset manager. So what we figured out was we actually partnered with an asset management firm on the West Coast in Orange County, actually in Seal Beach. They have under 100 folks, but they like have like 30 years experience. They have a trade desk in New York. So by partnering with them, they didn't really have the ability to raise private equity. And they usually only did asset management for other large funds. But the unique thing they could do with us was co-own a fund. So that kind of brought an advantage for them, right? So now they could be owners instead of just asset managers. 
Meanwhile, we could tap into their experience, their trade desk and, and all the above, right? So it was a nice little marriage for us. And you know, we continue to work with those guys. And it's been a great thing for us. And that's what's really upticked the amount of volume we can do. And then they also had a lot of good connections on institutional capital for us. So now we can raise private equity, get some institutional capital and get a blended rate, which is basically lowering our cost of capital, although it's going up these days. Um, and that enabled us to take down larger and larger trades and, and things like that. So it kind of blew up that business. And what we noticed was as our non-performing loan business grew and became more profitable, we didn't have a lot of tax advantages. So the commercial real estate, which is what I used to do prior to the note business, I was like, hey, maybe we should do some commercial real estate because we'll get some of the appreciation and accelerated stuff and componentizing all the good stuff that comes along with that. And that can offset some of the profitability from the MPL book of business. And then we also have something that works in both segments. So we more of becoming capital allocators and a little bit of a fund of funds model as opposed to the one trick pony that we used to be. And I think it's been great because now we have an investment committee and we have an allocation thesis every year. We marry our economic data and then, then it becomes how much capital do we want to allocate in each vertical we do have a third vertical, which is commercial notes. We buy a lot of fix and flip loans. We have a company we own 20% of that does originations. They're also based in California, but they originate in like 40-something states. So we have, we're a facility for them. We're their capital that they lend out to do hard money loans. And then we have first right to buy those loans. And what that does is it enables us to even out, if we're raising capital all the time, we can park capital into these hard money loans we also do some commercial loans that we buy from a bank in the like one to 10 million range. And they're like construction loans and bridge loans, those types of things. And by doing that, we can invest our money in those loans. They cash flow, they're shorter term loans, like the hard money loans are average eight, nine months, the commercial loans, maybe one to two years. But if we need to recapitalize, we can sell them on the secondary market. We can put them on a line of credit we have and recapitalize, or we can lump them into a securitization. Every now and then we'll, we'll do a securitization. So we have a lot of liquidity options from that, and then we can cash flow from it. So it's a, that vertical, even though it's only like 5% of our business, it's a great way for us to regulate capital, if that makes sense. Like, so that way we're not getting a lot of cash drag. So most of the business is still the NPL business, but the commercial real estate business is growing. And you know, we're looking probably to deploy about 80 million in private equity and commercial real estate this year. Now we have to go find that. That's the, uh, the fun part. But we, we're always looking for best in class operators, that kind of thing to partner with. That's kind of our model. So we're not really an operator, although we have a team. We're more of a capital allocator into that vertical right now. Now, it doesn't mean we won't become an operator five years from now. Maybe we will in a couple of geographies or something, but. So it's just a different approach, probably, yeah. than most people. So in some ways, we're very, believe it or not, our strictest screening is really on the sponsor more than it is on the, I mean, we screen the deal, of course, don't take it the wrong way. Yeah. Screening the deal is the easy part, screening the sponsor. Oh, totally. Yep. Is totally different animal, right? Yeah. What do you feel like is the thing you said, maybe you'll become an operator in five years. What do you feel like is the thing that's holding you back from becoming a full operator? I mean, Annie and I, we run Good Egg. We have many of these discussions <laughs> over the years as well, but curious to hear your position on that. Well, I think in the old days, that's where Dave would have went. He would have went straight down the operating path. 
But what I've learned that is if I can get a best-in-class operator, even though you're leaving something on the table, I'm focusing on my unique ability and the company's unique ability, which is capital raising, right? Which is do what we do best and let the operators do what they do best. And what I'm finding is it can be a nice marriage. Uh, you know, some of the operators that we're with have been 20, 30 years in the multi-business, and they're not crazy about raising capital, some of them, right? And some of them, I have one friend, he owns 30 complexes, right? And he's like, but here's the thing. He even has a capital raise arm. But what's nice about us, it, he just funded a deal and there's an, he has a robust pipeline and there's another deal right there. He can't really take it down, for example. So we're enabling him to grow twice as fast in some ways, right? So it, I think there's a win-win there if you find the right counterparties. And then it's really like, who do you want to be in a foxhole with when the going gets tough, right? For me, it's a good operator because I had done property management in a previous life. And I know when the going gets tough, it's all going to be about operations. Anybody can be a good marketer, raise money, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes down to things getting tough, it's how good are you at really operating and renovating? Like I've renovated you know, thousands of places, right? So for me, when I'm doing a site visit, I'm looking at the viability of that project. I'm not just looking at all the pro formas are, I call them the, the BS Excel sheet, basically. So it's all really the viability is, is this model really realistic? Is, are you really going to be able to implement this and get it done? And that's, you know, I'm not telling you anything you probably don't already know, right? Yeah. And I think that a lot of this nice marriage that you're talking about, this nice relationship ultimately really benefits the investors, right? Because they get someone that they can trust and they get someone who has experience and they kind of come together and run the asset. At the end of the day, good deals are good deals on paper. But when the stuff starts going the wrong way, you want to make sure you're with the right people who know what they're doing. And so I think it's really smart to do that. And I think it's something that we believe in as well and why we have a very similar model as well. So I'm curious, last question kind of before we move on, is investing in notes right now, It's you mentioned it's going to be a great time for us to, for folks in investors to think about getting into notes without the tax depreciation benefits is investing in notes sort of a good diversification play for investors right now why would someone want to not just be 100% in multifamily or majority in multifamily and still invest in notes right with all of the tax benefits and things like this that this is personal now this is a personal <laughs> now it's funny you say that cuz my personal philosophy is it's not really that sophisticated it's really short term mid term long term Tax advantage, non-tax advantage. That's the gist of it. And so a lot of times, like I'll meet with, I'm just meeting with my financial folks because tax time just ended for me or it's ending right this week. <laughs> and they're always like, well, what do you feel you're going to have an earned income the upcoming year, for example? Or And really what I do is I go out and I try to find appreciable asset classes to go invest in different verticals and whether it's machinery, I do a lot of ATM, there's oil and gas, there's other products that have depreciation as well, not just real estate, if someone's really trying to be diversified a little more. And then I also look at my qualified plans. And a lot of times I'm trying to maximize all of these things. It, maybe it's the accounting background I had. That's probably the one takeaway I had be, before I didn't become an accountant was the tax thing. Because um, that is like my second hobby besides passive investing is because every dollar I saved in taxes was a dollar to invest. And I was really a blue collar kid. I didn't have a lot of capital or anything, didn't start out wealthy or anything. 
So every dollar I saved in taxes became another dollar to invest. And when you compound that over a long period of time, it becomes very meaningful, right? So for me, I've always been utilizing tax strategies as well. And I think that combination, that mix. So notes always found a place for me, especially because you know I would invest in notes through qualified plans and things like that. And they were still very lucrative too. And occasionally you do get the property. So there is a difference between when you invest in the actual note, which is interest income, and then it becomes a long-term or short-term capital gain, depending on when you sold it or exited it. Whereas a note fund is a little different. It's very passive. It's just ACH payments. We're known to be a coupon payment, basically. We have a long 15-year track record of just being a consistent coupon payment. People have the ability to compound. And if someone wanted to be diversified in the notes very quickly, the other thing we have is liquidity. The note business has liquidity, whereas real estate isn't as liquid as notes. So while it's becoming, it's trying to become liquid, right? You could sell a house on eBay now or something, but in the old days, houses weren't really liquid. Whereas no, you know, I could sell a note in about three minutes, right? I can package up a portfolio of notes and sell it in a couple of days. I can't sell a portfolio of houses in a couple of days. We do sell a lot of houses. I mean, we probably sell about 300 REOs a year uh, throughout the country, but you're not selling them in a day or anything. Not like I could have pulled mortgages, right? So it is more liquid. And I think it's it has a place in people's portfolios, different types of debt. And with some of the unsecured debt, I mean, I have returns sometimes in the 20% range, where if I'm doing that in a qualified plan, I'm making 15 or 20% in my qualified plan from unsecured notes tied to business receivables or something. I'll do some of that. Now, I'm not saying I would put my whole portfolio in that. That might be a swing of the bat or... So I think it's just a, a tempered approach and thoughtful approach as to what you invest in. Now, I understand the note business probably, whereas if someone was new to that, not saying venture into something, you don't know what you're doing. I'm the opposite. I believe invest in what you know. So if you came to me and said, Dave, you want to invest in this nightclub we're investing in? I'd be like, no, I've done that and lost money before in that. And no, I'm not going to do that. But no, I kind of stick to the real estate assets that I invest in and the lending assets that I invest in. I'm pretty boring that way, probably. And I'm patient. So, but I do like to be diversified. I did have an insurance background. Sometimes I'll do a little insurance fund investing because it's not tied to any of the markets, right? So when things are bad, you wish you had more of that. And then again, when things aren't bad, you're like, well, the returns aren't as good. So you could argue. So I do have some boring investments. I have some stuff that doesn't pay super high returns, but it's super safe, right? So I think there's a place for all of those things in all of our portfolios, probably. What kind of returns can someone expect right now in the note space? It's a good question, especially hard money. Like most of our note fund tradition. Yeah, it's funny you bring this up. For years, the note funds were just under hard money returns. So there was a time not that long ago when I started PPR, hard money rates were 18% and six points. Like People forget that, right? Now, hard money became a commodity and became more of a, a platform on the internet, right? Where you saw hard money rates fall as low as 8.9 and things like that, maybe even a little lower. And now you're starting to see them go back up, right? But for years, we were always just under them. And the reason being was this. If I go and get a hard money deal, it's hard to scale hard money deals though, right? So I have to go find another deal and I have to go find another deal and it, I got paid back and I got to go redeploy it. And then there's downtime and I might have a couple months down or I can go in the PPR fund and my money is invested all the time, but it's just a hair under that rate, but I'm getting money all the time, right? 
So, and then what happened a couple of years ago, it went the other way where we were paying more than hard money. But you're seeing it start to go the other way right now. So I'm seeing hard money coming back up. So it's kind of an interesting thing that's happening right now. We never really fell below it, unless it was just for a short period of time. Like we did have a six-month option and a one-year option. Whereas commercial real estate funds, you know, I'm in industrial, I'm in storage and this and that. You know, you're in for five and 10 years sometimes. And lately we've gotten spoiled where we've been in for three years and two years and yeah, we're in Phoenix and everything's rosy and we got in and out. We made a killer. But that's not normal, right? That's not going to last. And it may go back to, hey, it might be back to the five, 10 year plan, guys. So keep that in mind. Now, the other side for me is a lot of it's age related, right? So for example, I'm not getting any younger and I have a lot of long-term investments. So some of it's, you can't really go by what's Dave investing in today because I might be backfilling a a gap in my portfolio where, hey, I have plenty of long-term stuff. I want some more shorter-term stuff or I want a little more cash flow because I'm getting closer to being fully retired or whatever that is, right? So you got to look at the whole enchilada a little bit. So going back to the returns that someone can expect right now, we in the 10% range because I know like five years ago or so, seven years ago, you could still get like 12%. Well, they were high. So believe it or not, this is going to sound crazy. We paid 18% for four years. We paid 12% for four years. Yeah. So there have been time periods where we paid high rates. Now, when we paid the 18s, we were all in junior leagues back then. Yeah. But what happened as the fund grew, you couldn't get enough of them or enough supply, right? As you have more capital under management, the harder it is to deploy it and maintain high levels of rates, right? It just okay. makes common sense when you think about it. But today, probably still seeing notes in that 8 to 12% range. They're starting to go up. Okay. And as far as, and it depends whether you're backed by a first mortgage or a junior lien, right? So if it's junior lien, you get a higher rate than if it's first mortgage. But as far as our note funds right now, our highest rate is 11. But if you compound, it's 12.96. So it's really almost 13. And that's for a three-year period. And if you come in for a one-year period, it's 8%. And if you come in for, what do you call it, six months, it's 6%. But the 11% is open to people that are larger minimums over 500,000. If you're under that, then it's 10%. And if you compound that, it's 11.6, I think it is. So some people want the ACH every month. Some people want, you know, let it compound. So it depends on the investor. Some investors want to set it and forget it and forget about it. And some investors want the compounding. And then some investors want the cash flow. They're living on it. And we kind of see a mix. It's whatever they really want to do. But as far as notes can tend to have a little higher rate than the funds because they're managing it, right? And they're taking on the risk. Now, we used to sell a lot of retail notes. In fact, that's what kind of gave us a lot of brand recognition was we had a warranty on our notes. If you bought a performing note, we used to warranty those notes. Today, we don't really sell retail notes. We only sell in the secondary market because, well, there's a lot of compliance, there's a lot of liability. And then there was a lot of, my partner could sell one trade. He could sell a hundred notes. Or do I want to sell to a hundred individuals? That's a lot of paperwork. So as we grew, that became less of a thing. But in the beginning, that's how we built the company. So are, right now, as far as options for investing with PPR, is there just one fund option or do you have others or what does yes. that look like? Yeah. Right now we work with the accredited. We have contemplated, do we start a Reg A fund at some point? That's something I'm seeing that's popular now where it's something we're definitely considering. We've also 
consider becoming a REIT. We've gone down a couple of different paths. The RIA, the REIT, all the all these other paths. Who do you want to be when you grow up? Go to broker capital. So I think we all, maybe it's our nature, real estate investors, we have some of that shiny object stuff that goes on in the back of our heads. Of trying to overcomplicate things when we should be keeping them simple. But no, it is a great point. For many years, though, we did. About the only thing we have for the unaccredited these days is we do sell a lot of REO property and we do have a lot of fixed, we have a fix and flip lending arm. And then they have a 30 year rental product as well. Now, those rates have been going up, though, to be quite honest. Right. Just like everything else. So they're not as sexy as they were a year ago, or yeah. two years ago. All right. Well, so much information. Wow. I mean, just I could sit and pick your brain for hours. So many different avenues and roads we could go down. Lots of information. Thanks so much for sharing us all that you did today. We're going to move into the last part of our show, the Life and Money Show Spotlight Round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? Well, I'm a pretty boring guy now. Uh, I guess the biggest thing is my kids are raised. I have four grandkids. So me and my wife, we're actually looking mostly in Florida and Texas, but we're leaning towards Texas for like a second home to live half the year down in a warmer state. And then we're keeping our home. You know, we just renovated our home here. And my home here is only like six minutes from my office, but I typically only go in like two days a week. So I pretty have a pretty good, actually, I'm pretty blessed. I have a great lifestyle and hours and all those things. I sleep a lot. I read a lot. I meditate a lot. You know, some of the crazy, some of the things I do, I like cooking and me and my wife like kayaking. So when we travel around, we like to kayak in different places. I like to play ping pong and chess and I have my one grandson's. 16, believe it or not. And we'll play chess online like he is and I'm where I'm at. We can play on our phones. So I enjoy like goofy things like that sometimes <laughs> or going to their activities, which that's a full-time job with four kids. Like I could literally go to something every day. Like, yeah. Well, Dave, you do not look like you have a 16-year-old grandson. That's incredible. That's <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, three grandsons and a granddaughter. They're well, the youngest just turned four, four, six, and my granddaughter's nine. Yeah. So they're a lot of fun. They'll keep you, you know, you guys know, right? So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll keep you busy. They'll keep you busy. Well, they that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome that you guys are looking for a second home in Texas. I'm sure that there's probably some tax benefits hiding in there. <laughs> yes, there is. And one of the things I'm a big, one of the things I've been digging into, and not that I need to, is I enjoy it. It's like, some of the fire stuff, like the, what is it? The, my girl, Vicky Robin from the fire movement stuff. And it's not that I want to necessarily do everything, but I'm intrigued of all the creativity of it, like all the, and there's like a, a million ways to go about that. Right. So it's always, I find it just fascinating. Some of the, the hacks, the life hacks that people come up with to do things better you know, whether it's their eating or the environment or the community. And, and it's just all those ideas. And I kind of aspire to some of that. Some of the biggest giving back things for us have been all around like homelessness. I actually had a brother-in-law who passed away homeless. And so homeless charities were a big thing for us. And then I also had uh, my oldest son was in recovery. So we've owned a recovery house for a long time. Um, I owned it with him for 11 years. And we had over a thousand gentlemen through that facility. And 
he since took on his own now because he knows I'm not going to be in the area half a year. So he actually is running the whole thing himself at this point, which is kind of neat to watch. It's been a long time. That's probably been the most rewarding piece of, but probably the most rewarding real estate I've ever had was the recovery center because it, you know, people are coming up to you going, you saved my husband's life or you saved my son's life or it's very impactful. It's, it's totally different. My regular tenants don't come and hug me or anything <laughs> for the most part. You know, <laughs> I probably wouldn't want them to hug me. But yeah. the, so it's, it's a different thing. It's been very rewarding over the years. And it's great to see him continue that on, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that'll make an impact in others' lives right now? I think the biggest thing for me was for people to think more like the bank and have your investments pay your liabilities, right? So I'm trying to think of two quick examples of that. Like my one partner one time was going to put an addition on his house and he was taking out a home equity line of credit. And I said, well, why don't you buy a little extra and buy a note with it? And that's what he did. He bought a reperforming junior lien and the cash flow, because you can buy them at like 30, 40 cents on the dollar, right? So he basically was able to get the cash flow from the note, pay back the home equity line of credit. He got a free addition. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool, right? It's it's kind of the same way. Like if I wanted to get my wife a new Mercedes or something, I would always, I was the type of guy that would always look at, well, what investment's gonna pay for that payment, not like reach in my pocket and pay it. Like I just never had that mindset. And um, even when my son went to college, my youngest son, because his wife now they got married, she went to the same college and you know, her parents stroked a check for that college where my son paid about a third. And the way that he did it was. He goes, you and mom just going to pay for college? I'm like, well, that's not really how we do it here. So took out student loans. My wife actually took out a student loan too for him. And then we kept our money invested. And then when it came time to pay those student loans back, we did the same thing. We bought, we had reperforming notes we bought. And my son bought a note for, he didn't borrow much. He borrowed maybe 17, 18 grand. And he, he bought a note for like 4,500 or five grand. And the payment from the note paid a student loan. And he basically was able to go to college for a third of the money when you factored it all in. And it's how we pay for stuff. It's not what we pay. It's how we pay. And I knew he learned the lesson because when he had moved to LA, he was a script writer. And he, he moved to LA for a while and he had shipped his used car out there. And the used car went and he goes, Dad, he calls me out one day, Dad, I need a car. Do you have any of those short-term notes laying around? You know, Because then I knew it clicked that your assets pay your liabilities. He was looking for a note. And do you know what he did? He got a seven-year note and the payment was like 300 a month on the note. He bought it for around five grand again. And he bought, instead of buying a used car, he bought a brand new Prius or released it. And the note paid the payments. And think about it. He was able to have a new car for, now he ended up moving to New York, didn't need a car, but you get the idea that theory there is powerful. And I think that's probably my biggest takeaway for people is to think about what can you leverage that's going to really, what assets can pay your liabilities? Or even like my coaches have said to me, what can you leverage in the next six to 12 months that's going to catapult you? It's really about leverage. I think leverage was the thing that changed things for me because today that's kind of what I'm always thinking about. What can I leverage? Can I leverage technology, yeah. people, this, that? It's always about leverage which I wish I knew more when I was younger than I know now about that. Oh, yeah. Where I was, like, a perfect example was hard money. I was afraid to use hard money because I thought the rates were high. 
And I was an agent at Remax selling 75, 80 houses a year to real estate investors. And I was like, looking back, I was like, why didn't I buy them all? I had money. I had the lender. What was I thinking? I had the management company. I was, you know, why? I was focused on commissions. I wasn't focused on how dumb looking back. I was like, uh, hello. Yeah. You had all the stuff right in front of you, right? I was like, so I have plenty of those. They're not really regrets, but they're... Yeah. 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 No, I think when I fell into this space five, six years ago, leverage was one of my favorite things. It still is today, but one of my favorite things that I sort of unearthed and discovered about the way that we spend our money you know, and, and the way that we use the tools that we have available to us to live the lives that we want to live, which is lots of what we talk about here on the show. All right. Well, last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? Wow. I think it's kind of like around my next, which I've been struggling with because I'm at that I'm building in redundancy in my company. I do have a couple of partners and my son, my youngest son's worked here 11 years, but it's, I'm ready to go the other way at some point right, where I'm slowing down or working less. So it's really, what's my next going to be? And that's really been a thing I've been exploring for a while. And how can I help the most and get back? But my degree was in, you know, like I said earlier, management consulting was something I always was intrigued by. And it's something that I started to do a little bit of. And I'm doing mostly management consulting uh, around capital raising and real estate for the most part, because it's something I've always done. And I'm actually enjoying it. And I think the difference is because they listen to you. Maybe it's because they pay you. I don't know. So that's been fun. And then I have this woman that's been coaching me for seven, eight years now. She's been one of my coaches. And um, I was with her last night. She actually has a program in the city now where she's basically I'm helping her to try to raise awareness and capital for this scholarship program because her coaching is around how to scale your business, the kind of thing. And she's working in some of the impoverished areas, uh, in this case, Philadelphia, and uh, where going into minority owned and female owned businesses, for example, and trying to create more jobs and get them the resources they need. So, and one of the ways she's doing that is having this scholarship program. So I'm trying to basically try to help raise some money for the scholarships to get the people so that the people that are trying to start businesses are successful, stay successful and try to get rid of some of the poverty that we have. You know what I mean? So it's that part's been kind of intriguing to me right now that I'm playing around with. That's what I'm into now. Um, now my wife, she's she was she was toying around with do we because we did the recovery house thing. She was like, uh, she's been contemplating starting a house for unwed moms. So that's her that's her gig right now. She's trying to con me into this. So we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> well, it's so inspiring to see this this multi layered legacy that you've built through all these companies, all these ventures that you've been a part of, and how you're continuing to expand that impact through the new things that you're being a part of and the new initiatives as well. And so I know that our listeners um, are going to want to follow up with you and learn more. So tell them what's the best place that they can go. You can't get a hold of me. I have no phone number. No. <laughs> no, I guess the easiest is through pprnoteco.com or on bigger pockets. I do answer questions, believe it or not. We have a distressed mortgages group on LinkedIn. We answer questions on there as well. But bigger pockets is probably the place that I 
communicate with the general public about questions and investing and things like that. Uh, but you can definitely reach out to us on our site too, pprnoco.com. There's definitely a contact form there. Anybody wants, we help anybody pretty much. So we're all about that. Dave Van Horn, King of Notes and CEO of and founder of PPR Note Company. Dave, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and your wisdom with us and our audience. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.